earnestly seek to commend yourself to God as an approved worker who has nothing to be ashamed of, handling the word of truth with precision. We're glad you're joining us for today's program, A Word from the Word, with your host, Pastor Tom, who will unpack for us the richness and beauty of the Bible's original languages as they bear on key words and concepts from both Testaments. Our hope is that your walk with God will be strengthened and deepened, and both your understanding and application of God's Word will be enriched, and you'll be drawn to love it more and more each day. And now, here's Pastor Tom. Hello, friends. Thanks for joining me on A Word from the Word. Are you in your car, at home, elsewhere on your mobile device, listening with family or some friends, catching the podcast? Well, the last two installments in our series, Faith's Fundamentals, Building a Solid Belief System, were devoted to dipping our feet into the nature of the spirit world. Today we're going to transition from that to delving into the nature of the world to come. In other words, the kingdom of God, contrasting it with the kingdom of this world. So friends, today in part 12, I'm going to ask a key question. Jesus' kingdom, will you pass the entrance exam? You know, when I was growing up, a household name on the political world scene was Nikita Khrushchev, former prime minister of the then USSR from 1958 to 1964. Perhaps for some of you, the name rings a bell. Well, during Khrushchev's term in office, he boasted he would display the last Soviet Christian on television by 1965. It's been over 50 years since that projected date. Khrushchev has since been escorted into eternity, an eternity determined by the judge of all the earth. Khrushchev died in 1971, and his deadline for the extinction of Christianity in Russia has long passed. Throughout history, friends, so-called great and influential people, as well as small and inconspicuous people, have strutted across the stage of life's drama, defying God. But the Apostle Peter, in his first letter, quoting the prophet Isaiah, makes a boast of his own, of course, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. In 1 Peter 1.24, he says, All flesh is like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Now, interestingly enough, Peter's word choice for flesh is not the word for humanity in general, but actually flesh. In fact, Paul uses the same term in 1 Corinthians 15 when he says, All flesh is not the same. Then he mentions humans, beasts, birds, and fish. This is a reference to all created life. So, the Bible is telling us that since, and because of the fall, all created life will eventually wither and die. Sin entered into the world through our first parents, and death came into the world through sin. Death then spread to every one of us, and has taken its toll on the entire creation. 
Well, friends, the psalmist even makes a boast in Psalm 145, 13. Your kingdom, in other words, God's kingdom, is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. Someone named T.Z. Koo made this insightful remark. The kingdom of God does not exist because of your effort or mine. It exists because God reigns. Our part is to enter this kingdom and bring our life under his sovereign will. And, I might add, under his reign. In a sense, we could say our task is to reign in our life and bring it under God's reign. No pun intended. Well, today, friends, I'd like us to look at a person referred to affectionately as the rich young ruler, a young man who had an inquiring mind and who specifically inquired about entering the kingdom of God. Of the three Gospels that record this account, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, let's view this young man's encounter with Jesus through Mark's eyes. Mark chapter 10, 17 through 31. We might say at this stage that Jesus was at the tail end of the peak of his earthly ministry. The transfiguration was behind him, and the triumphal entry was just ahead. Sandwiched in between these two key events is several of what I call Jesus's slice of life teachings, one being his encounter with this rich young ruler. So let's listen in on Mark's telling. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Do not defraud. Honor your mother and father. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said. Go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasures in heaven. Then come follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it's impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Peter said to him, We've left everything to follow you. I tell you the truth, Jesus replied, No one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields, and with them persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life, but many who are first will be last, 
and the last first. Now, friends, before we can even begin to understand this story and its underlying truth, we must. In other words, it's an absolute necessity that we define a phrase used often by Jesus and the gospel writers. A phrase that appears two times in this brief story of just 15 verses. That phrase is the kingdom of God, used interchangeably with the kingdom of heaven in Matthew's account. It's a phrase pregnant with meaning for the Jewish people, a concept whose cultural, political, and religious significance we in the 21st century need to grasp. King is not only used in the Bible for human rulers, but also for God as the supreme ruler of the world. Psalm 47, 2 exclaims, For the Lord Most High is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. Israel, as a nation, understood her association with God as a kingdom, with the Lord himself as their ultimate king even though in history they were also ruled by human kings. Through the Hebrew prophet Isaiah, the Lord declared, I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. God's rulership over Israel was a foretaste of a yet future kingdom, where evil would be fully overcome, and where those living in that kingdom would know only blessedness, peace and joy. And friends, linked to this expectation of a future blissful kingdom was the coming of their Messiah. This messianic expectancy included this hoped-for kingdom. In fact, the coming of the Messiah would signal the coming of this kingdom. John the Baptist astonished his audience when he announced that this expected and hoped-for kingdom was at hand in the person of Jesus. In Matthew 3, 2, John the Baptist's first words were, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus then authenticated John's words when he officially embarked upon his public ministry. Immediately after the temptation in the wilderness, Matthew 4.17 says, From that time Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Shortly after, in Nazareth, Jesus stood up in the synagogue and read from the prophet Isaiah. Do you remember that dramatic moment? In Luke 4, 16-21, Jesus declares that the kingdom had arrived with his arrival. Jesus went into the synagogue, as it was his custom, and he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it's written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. After Jesus' public ministry was up and running, he makes another declaration in Matthew twelve twenty-eight: If I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Friends, notice the interchangeability of the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. And notice that Jesus was declaring that through his ministry, the kingdom of God had dawned on the Israelites in particular 
and on humanity in general. But what the disciples failed to realize was that the kingdom that arrived with Jesus did not include the triumphal military victory the Jews longed for. This is actually evident in the reaction of the crowds on Palm Sunday in the following chapter, Mark 11, when the crowd shouted, Hosanna, which means save now. Isn't it interesting that the disciples and many from the multitudes that followed Jesus failed to recognize that the kingdom Jesus brought arrived secretly like leaven and that the kingdom that Jesus brought arrived inconspicuously like a mustard seed or like a small pearl of great value. You see, friends, the Jewish people expected the kingdom of God to obliterate their present evil age of bondage and bring it to a swift end. But it arrived mysteriously and didn't fulfill their expectations. The reality was this kingdom of God did in fact invade the present evil age, but instead of obliterating it, it overlapped it, infiltrated it in a sense. This kingdom of God that came through the earthly ministry of Jesus dawned in the form of a mystery, a mystery that did not overtake the world overtly, but rather did its work covertly. And as a result, both kingdoms now coexist side by side. The perfect kingdom of God will only be fully realized at the Messiah's second coming. That future kingdom will bring the present evil age to a close and usher in the perfect age foretold by the Hebrew prophets. I find it amazing that this confusion still lingered in the minds of the disciples right up to the time Jesus was going to ascend back into heaven. In the opening verses of Acts chapter 1, friends, we find that Jesus appeared to his apostles over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. Then on one occasion, while they were together, they asked Jesus, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Can you tell they were thinking about the restored earthly kingdom where Israel would finally be back on top and they'd finally be out from under the iron hand and oppression of Rome? Well, you see, all of this infuses meaning into Jesus' encounter with this rich young ruler, I didn't forget him, and is back the backdrop we need to properly interpret statements made during his conversation. Friends, there's more here than meets the eye. So let's take a second look at the story and see what riches await us. No pun intended. Mark 10:17 opens with a man ran up to him. Some of our Bibles have a heading here. It might be the rich young man or possibly the rich young ruler. All three gospels have rich. Matthew's gives us young and Luke's gives us ruler. Then follows what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, friends, one thing I want us to notice is that several expressions are used interchangeably. Eternal life in verses 17 and 30, 
functioning like bookends. Heaven, verse 21, kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven are used in verse 23 and 25, saved in verse 26, and age to come in verse 30. So when we combine the meanings of all these expressions, what we discover layered under this story is that these terms point to a realm populated by saved people who have been delivered from the tyrannies or the enslavements of this world, and in particular, wealth. And the people who make up this kingdom, the kingdom of God, are living a life under God's rule and reign. We also learn that this deliverance from the world can only be accomplished by God. Any attempts through human achievements are impossible. As verse 27 says, friends, It is precisely this understanding that we must read into this seemingly innocent question posed to Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? As the story unfolds, it forces us to emphasize the do part. In other words, what must I do to inherit eternal life? In verse 19, Jesus intentionally quotes the last six of the Ten Commandments, the ones dealing with our relationships with each other, our social and civic responsibilities. Verse 20 confirms that this rich young ruler had human achievements in mind, so he thought he had it made. He thought he had a shoe in. He thought he aced the entrance exam for the kingdom of God. But to his surprise, the entrance exam included something he was not prepared for, and this uncovered his true motive. I love how verse 21 begins, Jesus looked at him and loved him. Jesus spoke the truth in love, with love. Jesus was about to offer the ultimate opportunity to inherit eternal life. In verses 21 and 22, Jesus finally answers this young man's question. Go sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasures in heaven. Then come follow me. Wow! Oh man, what a tall order, huh? Notice this rich young man's response. His face fell. This word fell carries with it meanings of both gloom and shock. One modern translation says, gloom spread over his face. The text then tells us, because he had great wealth. Luke's account words it, for he was extremely rich. Now, Matthew and Mark use a word that implies possessions, even land. Luke uses a word that definitely means money, but also includes possessions. So this man's wealth may have been a combination of money and real estate. Then comes Jesus' tough clincher in verses 23 and 24. How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. This is just one more stereotype in the minds of the disciples Jesus had to correct. You see, friends, it was inconceivable to the Jewish mind of the first century that wealth should be a hindrance to enter the kingdom of God, since wealth was viewed as a sign of God's favor. In addition, many people during this time in history believed that wealth was a reward from God for being good. Hmm. 
Perhaps that's why this rich young man addressed Jesus as good teacher. Perhaps he thought he was addressing an equal. Jesus is a good teacher and I'm a good man. See, friends, this actually helps us properly interpret Jesus' answer and helps us understand why Jesus had to first correct this man's faulty view of goodness before answering his actual question about inheriting eternal life. Jesus' reply in verse 18 has perplexed some Bible students. One popular cult group has a field day with this verse. They think it's proof Jesus is not God. But it actually proves just that. Jesus is in fact God. Jesus was in effect saying, If you're going to call me good, be prepared to also acknowledge me as God. And as God, I decide what the entrance requirement is for the kingdom of God. And it's not human achievement. Jesus then tests this young rich man's declaration in verse 20. All these commandments you mentioned, I have kept since I was a boy. Notice this time he just calls Jesus teacher, dropping good from his answer. This tells me he understood what Jesus meant and realized that their two standards of goodness were different. But instead of reevaluating his standards, he dropped the word good, addressing Jesus as simply teacher. Well, friends, the question that is not recorded, but one that I believe would be the next logical question would be, what else should I do? In other words, what other human achievements can I do to guarantee my passing the entrance exam for the kingdom of God? So Jesus told him in verse 21, Jesus says, One thing you lack, go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. By saying this, Jesus told him what he must do, making it clear that wealth and possessions are not automatic shoe-ins to the kingdom of God. But what does enable someone to pass the entrance exam for the kingdom of God is actually trusting entirely on God and not trusting entirely on one's riches or possessions. And that, demonstrating that trust by being generous with one's resources and helping the poor and needy. You see, friends, love for God must manifest itself in love for others. Weren't these the first two great commandments? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself? Didn't James say it best in James chapter 2? What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. You see, friends, wealth and achievements can actually blind us to our need for Jesus. It goes back to that self-sufficiency thing, doesn't it? I talked about that a few programs ago. In essence, self-sufficiency makes us think we can handle things without God's help. Like saying, I got this one, Lord. Don't need your help today. 
Friends, here's the key. Until we're ready and willing to acknowledge the Lord as King over our lives and our possessions and demonstrate our trust in Him by sharing our resources with those in need, we will simply go on trusting ourselves, our self-sufficiency, and our own abilities, and then continue to amass resources that act as a cushion in our times of crisis. We may even move up the social or political ladder and gain prominence and prestige, and in the process succumb to the temptation that these achievements are what helps us pass the entrance exam into the kingdom of God. But we'd be dead wrong, wouldn't we, friends? What enables us to pass the entrance exam into the kingdom of God is recognizing that nothing we do will get us there. We are sinners to whom God has extended his grace. We are saved through trusting our souls to God and surrendering our lives to him and then loving and serving him by serving others. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, we're at the end of today's program. I hope the study has helped us understand some fundamentals about the kingdom of God. Today's broadcast will close with an email where you may contact me. Please also consider joining a word from the Word Support Team. Ask me for the details. Thank you to those who are helping keep this program on the air. And thanks for listening today, friends. And remember, Jesus loves you. I'm Pastor Tom with a word from the Word. Friends, if you would like to let Pastor Tom know what this program has meant to you, email him at a word from the word at minister.com. That's a word from the word at minister.com.